The environment and the climate are factors in every conflict. In some conflicts, indeed, the environment and or the climate has been arguably the decisive factor. The failures of France's invasion of Russia in 1812 and Germany's in 1941 have both been attributed to the formidable defensive strategist known as General Winter. Adapting to environment and climate has always been a priority for any military, especially one venturing beyond its own borders. Expeditionary wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan have been especially instructive in the difficulties of confronting an opponent who has considerable home field advantage. Today's militaries, however, face an extra dimension to this challenge. The climate is changing, and the environment with it. Climate change will make some theatres more difficult to operate in and will likely necessitate planning to operate in new theatres previously considered too cold, too wet or too dry. Added to which is the prospect of conflicts at least partially caused by climate change as some resources, water for example, become scarcer while others, like the minerals beneath the Arctic, become more accessible. What have militaries learned about adapting to environment and climate? How can those lessons be applied to environments and a climate which may be changing beyond recognition? And can we stop climate wars from being fought? This is the Foreign Desk. As heat increases across the planet, drought is exacerbated, storms are more intense and severe, sea level rise, retreating ice in the Arctic, Every dimension of climate change impinges on our ability to have stable societies. And security is all about stability. We talk about four basic types of environments in the military. And on some missions, you may encounter multiple different climatic zones in one deployment. So you can be pre-adapted to a certain level, but then you have to be ready to modify and to be a bit agile once you get into the environment that you find yourself in. Climate change is not just a threat multiplier, but it is the main threat. But the trouble is that climate change is amorphous, it's anonymous. You can't shoot climate change. So I think there's a tendency by militaries to sort of downgrade it, call it a threat multiplier. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. We'll be joined later in the show by the Australian counterinsurgency expert, Dr David Kilcullen. But first of all, I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by Sherry Goodman, Secretary General of the International Military Council on Climate and Security and former U.S. Deputy Undersecretary of Defence. And joining us from Dorset is Jasper Humphreys, Director of Programmes of the Marjan Centre for the Study of Conflict and the Environment at King's College London. Sherry, I'll start with you. Why is it necessary for an International Military Council to be considering climate and security as parts of the same problem? Well, because we know now that climate change not only poses an existential threat to all of society, but it is very much a national security challenge and a threat. Since 2007, we've characterized climate change as a threat multiplier. In that year, I formed the first group of U.S. generals and admirals to address the national security implications of climate change. And after spending a year studying with the world's leading climate scientists in both the UK and the US, we understood that climate change would act as a threat multiplier aggravating other instabilities that we face around the globe, from terrorism to political instability, weapons of mass destruction, 
And we've seen that over the last decade and a half as heat increases across the planet, drought is exacerbated, storms are more intense and severe, sea level rise, retreating ice in the Arctic, permafrost bond collapse. Every dimension of climate change impinges on our ability to have stable societies. And security is all about stability. And now we live in an era where the weather, the future is not stable, it's unpredictable. So just as we have had to face various adversaries in the past, now we have these actorless threats of which climate is the prime example. Jasper, to bring you in, there have, of course, been many, many conflicts about resources. It's one of the most fundamental things people fight about. So those are nothing new. But do you think we've already seen the first conflicts at least partially attributable to climate change? I think when one's talking about climate change and conflict, one's got to be extremely careful about how we contextualise. And I'll take an example. A common narrative concerning the Syrian uprising was that it was exacerbated by climate change. And indeed, that is partly true. More recent research has dug even deeper in micro-research into the whole situation concerning the weather, the data, the population shift, particularly the political situation there. And actually, the impact of climate change per se is very debatable. And one has to be extremely careful about how one contextualizes climate change and what is climate change as well. How are we defining it? And I think it's becoming very dangerous that climate change has become a sort of wide baggage trope for all sorts of different things. Maybe even missing the the most crucial point that climate change is not just a threat multiplier, but is the main threat. But the trouble is that climate change is amorphous, it's anonymous, you can't shoot climate change. So I think there's a tendency by militaries to sort of downgrade it or sideline it, call it a threat multiplier. I don't know how Sherry feels about that. You know, I think that used to be the case because military and defense and national security officials didn't always understand what climate change would mean for their mission for their operation, for their work of securing people's lives and securing areas. But now we better understand in a way we didn't a decade ago that as a result of climate change, militaries are more often to be called upon to respond to what we call humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions, or sort of to be in the 911 force to back up either internally in the U.S., let's say, domestic first responders, or when the big cyclone, the hurricane hits, who is going to come in and help rescue people and provide relief supplies? Often the military has the most capable either hospital ships, logistics, lift. So increasingly, militaries have to respond in that way. That is not necessarily their major mission, nor should it be. And militaries are not the solution to the climate challenge overall. That is something that we we can get into discussing about how we do development and diplomacy and get after the root causes of climate change. On the other hand, militaries, to the extent that they are large users of energy, can model how to decarbonize the mission. And that's also happening today, where in certain sectors, certain ways in which the military uses energy, 
whether it's aviation fuels or in vehicles, it can electrify, it can develop sustainable aviation fuels. And again, in that partnership, it can help contribute to the important effort we need to do to both reduce greenhouse gases. And then finally, I'd say on the resilience building side, we need to adapt and become resilient. Militaries around the world are faced by the same challenges where their bases are subject to sea level rise, storm surge, wildfires. Increasingly, militaries are responding to wildfires, but they're also affected by wildfires and heat. So as they become more resilient, that's another way in which they can help civilian communities and help all of us as we respond to the climate challenge. I just want to go back, Jasper, to what you were talking about with regard to Syria and that narrative, which you're correct, is alive and well out there that this was somehow brought about by climate change. And That's probably always going to be debatable. But nevertheless, if we think ahead on current trends 10, 20 years, is it possible to look at parts of the world and think that perhaps already extant potential conflicts there may be sparked or fanned by the effects of climate change? Are there places where that's more likelier than in others? There's a whole list of them. I mean, there's the Arctic, there's India, Pakistan, there's Fagana Valley in Iran, there's Iraq versus Turkey over water. A place I really worry about is the USA being swamped by potential from the vast migrations from there. That's actually one of my top on my watch list. Sherry, to conclude part one then, that does prompt what is a question which is obviously exercising American militaries, that so far, I think, when we look at places around the world which have been calamitously affected by climate change, it tends to be, as it is so often the case, poorer countries on the receiving end of it. And we saw a demonstration of that with those colossal floods which absolutely drenched Pakistan. But when wealthier countries, which are unaccustomed to that kind of thing, think about climate change in terms of national security. And if we think of the wealthiest country of all, i.e. the one that you're talking to us from, how is it potentially a national security issue for the United States? Well, as we've been discussing, there's a great deal of overlap between the most fragile countries in the world and the most climate vulnerable countries. And Central America is the Central America, Latin America triangle of Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua are among both the most fragile states in the Western Hemisphere and also among the most climate vulnerable. They've been hit by massive hurricanes in the last few years, and that's added to the already substantial flow of people from that region towards the U.S. So now that becomes an issue at the U.S. border. It's not, of course, only a climate issue by any means, and it brings in a lot of other considerations. But as I said, so the U.S. and the U.S. military is now thinking about what kind of in the Arctic, for example, do we have to operate differently in an increasingly open Arctic, one that is a contested region as opposed to historically a cooperative region with Russia militarization of the Arctic and Chinese aspirations of a polar Silk Road. So the U.S. has to think about how to position and rebuild its capabilities, as do our, of course, NATO and other Arctic allies. So in many cases, we see the effects of climate change sort of reshaping our geopolitics. And that also occurs as we make the energy transition, which countries are important for the critical minerals and materials we need 
for example, as we move more towards renewables and other new forms of energy. Sherry Goodman and Jasper Humphreys, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you later in the show. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Joining me now from Singapore to explain the role of the environment in military strategy making is Dr David Kilcullen, CEO of Cordillera Applications Group. A former Australian Army officer, David served as a counterinsurgency advisor to the United States during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and is the author of several books on guerrilla warfare. David, first of all, if we think in terms of expeditionary conflicts especially, how big a challenge can the environment be? Oh, it's extremely important. Regular military forces, so the militaries of nation states like the UK or Australia, need to be able to operate across multiple different operational environments. So they need to be versatile. They need to be able to do more than one environment and they need to be adaptable. That means that when you move into a new environment, you have to be sort of pre-adapted so that you're not completely unable to operate there but then you have to sort of rapidly catch up to the circumstances that you find. By contrast, you know, guerrillas and non-state groups, very well adapted to just one little area, but when they move to a different area, they can't operate effectively. That's really one of the principal differences between a professional military and a local guerrilla force. But for a local guerrilla force, such as, for example, the Taliban or the Viet Cong, the environment becomes kind of a weapon they have at their disposal. It does, particularly when you have a new force that's just rotating in that isn't yet fully adapted to that. When I worked in Afghanistan, we often noticed that the insurgents let an incoming group have about 20 days or so to get their feet under them, and then they would hit them quickly before they had fully adapted to the environment. And I think that was part of that. If you're talking about being prepared in advance, how can you prepare in advance, say, for example, for an environment like Afghanistan's, which is a fairly singular one as environments go? Well, we talk about four basic types of environments in the military, right? So we talk about hot, wet, hot, dry, cold, wet, and cold, dry. So hot and dry is Afghanistan, particularly southern Afghanistan in the summer. Cold and dry would be the Afghan mountains or northern Norway. Cold and wet would be also northern Norway and the Falklands or the Baltic states. And then hot and wet would be like Vietnam or the Pacific. So typically a military force will be able to operate to some extent across all four of those environmental types and will have equipment and stores, you know, ready to use for those particular environments. And on some missions, you may encounter multiple such environments. Think about a naval cruise like the Carrier Group 21 last year that went through multiple different climatic zones in one deployment. So you can be sort of pre-adapted to a certain level, but then you have to be ready to modify, right? And to be a bit agile once you get into the environment that you find yourself in. The theme of this episode is climate change and the military. Does the fact of climate change make those kind of adaptations more difficult? A military is going to have to learn to be nimble and remember that if they go back to a place, it might not be exactly the same as when they were last there. Yeah, here's a slightly counterintuitive point. Global warming actually makes militaries need to be able to operate in cold weather 
a lot more. So we're seeing the Northwest Passage through the Arctic now become accessible all through the 12 months of the year, which means that we find ourselves operating in the Arctic more, which means that we actually have to be better at cold weather operations as a result of the world itself getting a little bit warmer. I also think that adaptations to climate change, so things that societies do to adapt to it, are having a major impact on operations. So things like offshore wind farms and wave energy farms that disrupt naval maneuver, coastal flood barriers in a lot of cities, wind and solar farms inland, all that stuff is a human adaptation to climate change, but it changes the environment within which we have to operate. I think the biggest tactical impact of hot weather is the intensity of fire risk, right? So when you're in a firefight, you're slinging a lot of explosives and tracer bullets and so on around. And I've been in many firefights in hot weather environments where one side effect of getting into a battle is that you start a bushfire. And that's going to be an increasing risk for wounded or for the obscuration from smoke and all that stuff. So yeah, I think climate change will require us to adapt. It is already requiring that. I don't think it's necessarily going to be more extreme than what we've already had to deal with in the past, except in that one specific issue of we're probably going to find ourselves operating in cold weather a lot more because we can now get to those places in a way where we couldn't before. Do you see it having, or are you already seeing it having, an effect on military procurement or even recruitment? What kind of material and what kind of people militaries are going to be needing in a world changed by climate change? Yeah, so procurement for sure. Things like heat management, when you're talking about body armour or vehicles that have a lot of electronics, managing the heat that is produced by those systems or making it survivable for somebody to be in protective equipment in a really hot environment, that's changing how we think about a lot of the equipment we acquire. The other issue is that let's say you're running air conditioning or you've got an armored vehicle that's engine is running because it needs to do that in order to generate cooling effect. What you're actually doing is generating a gigantic thermal plume as a signature that can be picked up on an adversary's systems and that makes you a target. So there's a lot of work going into signature management, heat management, and then things like, you know, how do you keep food cold? How do you keep casualties in a survivable temperature when they get injured? So all that stuff is part of it. In terms of people, I think the biggest change is actually that we've gone from fairly static garrison-based activities in Iraq and Afghanistan to more mobile. So we're out there without a lot of the support systems that we began to take for granted in the war on terrorism. And that means that recruits need to be willing and able to operate in that much more austere environment with less support, less comfort, and able to operate effectively. And that's non-trivial, right? It's not just a matter of, oh, I feel cold, so I'm a little bit unhappy. It's, can I actually stay alive and functioning for a lengthy period of time in that extreme environment? So yeah, I think both procurement and recruiting are areas where the change in the environment is shifting some of the requirements that we're looking at. 
Just as a final thought, and it might sound like rummaging for a silver lining in the cloud, though I'm not, is it conceivable that we might see some previous theatres of battle simply become unnegotiable because the climate, the environment has become too hostile? Just going back to what you were saying about the difficulty of maintaining livable temperatures in hot environments, I can remember meeting a young American tank officer in Baghdad shortly after the invasion in 2003 who made the point that he was glad they'd gone when they'd gone because if they'd had to wait a couple more months they probably couldn't have because the Abrams tank of course is not air conditioned and it would have been 60 degrees centigrade in the cockpit. Yeah although we did of course operate there for the next eight years all through the summer right so it was manageable but I think you're right I think there are going to be climatic zones where people will not be there anymore they'll move out of there because it's not livable And wars happen where people live. So if there's no civilian population there or no conflict happening there, there's less requirement for us to deploy. I actually would say that cold weather kills many more people than hot weather globally. And that's true for civilians, but it's particularly true for the military, right? If a wounded casualty has a really, really low survival rate in very cold temperatures, warmer temperatures are uncomfortable But as a macro point, they're probably likely to be easier for us to handle than uh, extreme cold. So ironically, you might find that, in fact, there are some benefits right, to a warming climate in terms of how we operate militarily. David, thank you. As always, that was Dr. David Kilcullen, CEO of Cordillera Applications Group. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Sherry Goodman, Secretary General of the International Military Council on Climate and Security, and Jasper Humphreys, Director of Programmes of the Marjan Centre for the Study of Conflict and the Environment at King's College London. Jasper, we talked a bit in the first part of the show about where climate-exacerbated conflicts of the future may end up occurring, but... Is there any indication yet that climate change could end up changing the way that wars are fought? The example that springs to mind is the French army in sub-Sahara in Mali. The temperatures, of course, is you know, increasing every year, year, and they've had to adapt their fighting. Times of the day, more water. How do you get the fuel to your vehicles in this intense heat? Waterholes that used to be there are no longer there, so they can't rely on reliable water sources, that sort of thing. Sherry, are these conversations that you hear being had among senior American military that that they're going to have to rethink the kind of equipment they need, that perhaps, for example, heavy armour becomes less practical where it's too hot to drive it or too wet to steer it? Is it going to have an effect on the way that militaries equip themselves? Absolutely. And we're already deep into examining how we reset the military for the climate era in the United States and with our NATO allies. You know, 20 years ago, we talked about needing to own the night, for example. Militaries need to be able to have night vision goggles and equipment allowing them to see and dominate the battlefield at nighttime. Now we talk about having to own the heat. We have to be able to equip our forces to be able to operate, as Jasper said, in hotter temperatures, more extreme cold in the Arctic, but hotter temperatures in other parts of the world as we've made our soldiers and Marines more electronically capable over the last 20 years, we've weighted them down with heavy batteries. Now we've got to rethink what kind of weight can one carry or need. Also, trends converge here in some ways between autonomy and also being able to 
manage in more extreme climates. So we see more unmanned systems being developed, which are already coming along, but there could be further applications here. So I think people are thinking about creatively, we have to be able to operate and become resilient and secure safety of people around the world under different extremes. And that means rethinking equipment, personnel, people, of course, as well as how we base and how we move forward in what we call now the contested logistics environment. We learned the hard way in Iraq and Afghanistan that taking fuel and water to the front was putting lives of soldiers and Marines at risk when they were trucking that fuel. Now, of course, that already begun an era of trying to move off those long logistics supply lines. That's becoming even more evident in the climate era. Jasper, on a related note, and this may sound like a glib question, but I think it's one of the more fundamental ones. If we end up in a situation, and this is certainly likely to be the case in the Arctic, that there is more ocean which requires patrolling or owning or contesting, does naval power enjoy something of a renaissance? Oh, absolutely. And we've seen it in Ukraine, in the attack in Crimea, the underwater drones. We're going to see more and more of that autonomous. You don't need ships. You've got those underwater drones. They do the job. And the Russians are much further ahead than the West in this sphere. And Sherry, have you heard similar prognostications from American militaries that they think that naval power might be the force of the future? Well, certainly we're not expecting to fight more land wars in the Middle East, Central Asia. We are looking, of course, at how we equip naval forces, but all of our forces to be able to operate in a changing climate. Now, of course, we have a space force as well. So we have additional capabilities. And of course, as we become more adept in space, we have a lot of observing capabilities that will be helpful better for us to predict how climate affects people and humanity and hopefully in the future, be able to become more resilient more quickly, as well as, of course, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but also to provide that predictive capability that's going to be so important to becoming resilient in the climate age. We're getting towards the part of the show where we look for some concluding and ideally constructive closing thoughts. And Jasper, Is there an argument, and this may be wildly optimistic of me, that militaries are actually quite well placed to set some sort of example in becoming less polluting, that they are organisations with a fairly solid chain of command, they can make decisions, they can reinvent themselves, they can adapt quickly to changing environments, that's literally supposed to be one of their core functions. Is that something that you see being taken seriously enough as an idea, the idea of a carbon-neutral military? Oh, yeah, very much so. We're talking about the Western powers. Yeah, no, it's very much on board. I feel sorry for the armed forces in a way, because they're an easy target to beat with a stick through emissions. And everyone knows that they do have massive emissions. But then they can turn around and say, well, what is the civilian world doing about it? You know, they're meeting at COP and, you know, things. So at the end of the day, the armed forces are there to do a single job, which is to provide protection. They're not there to set green targets for backsliding politicians. But nevertheless, and just finally, Sherry, the US Army, as I'm sure you know, announced this year its first climate strategy, laying out plans for hybrid vehicles, zero carbon military bases. And again, going back to the conversations you have regularly with senior military, do you get the sense that they absolutely understand that there's a self-interested necessity for this from their point of view, that it will actually make them better armies for the future? 
Absolutely. You know, in defense, and this is also true in the UK, there's been a lot of leadership in the British Army over the last several years, including with a retired now Lieutenant General Richard Nugy, with whom I've worked very closely. Militaries understand that first and foremost, it's about being effective, operationally effective and having an effective fighting force. But we know in the climate era that if you can have a, a more secure logistics supply chain and if you have distributed energy and you're not reliant on a single fuel source, you will be able to operate better. And so this is very important. How we power our forces in a climate change world using decarbonized sources is going to make us lighter, faster, and more effective. Now, the militaries in the 1990s, when I served in the U.S. Department of Defense, went from being seen as an environmental laggard to an environmental and clean energy leader. And that really is true still today. And I think at least the U.S. and our NATO allied and Western allied militaries have the potential and are on the path to being both climate aware, climate sensitive of their particular roles in this case, but also leading from the point of view of making our forces more effective and modeling what our future should look like. Sherry Goodman and Jasper Humphreys, thank you both very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>